Well, keep your Bibles open there to the book of Revelation, but turn back a few pages to Revelation chapter 1. Here we are in the opening chapter of the ultimate book of the Bible. Ultimate means the last, but it also means the greatest, and perhaps both of those meanings are fitting for the book of Revelation, the ultimate book of the Bible. And as we've been looking into Revelation chapter 1, this is our third week in the study, we looked last week into verses 4 through 9, and I mentioned at the beginning of that sermon that these are very rich and dense, theologically packed verses, and that we could spend several weeks unpacking them, and so that ends up being what we're doing. I'd hope to unpack all of that last week, but we've got a lot left to unpack in verses 4 through 9 this week. So let's go ahead and start off this morning by reading from verse 1 down through verse 9. Follow along in your Bible. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Thus far, we have looked into these verses and examined who it is that we are in Christ. Then we just got started looking at who God is in the person of the Trinity in these verses. And so all of this information is important for us here at the beginning of the book. Who are we? Who is God? And then verse 7 Christ coming. That is the theme of the book, and that's what we'll be building up to today. So, quick review on who we are in Christ. You see there in these verses that we are those who have been loved by the Lord Jesus Christ, who are loved by the Lord Jesus Christ, who have been set free from our sins in verse 5. We are those who have been made a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. And as a priestly kingdom, We are awaiting the coming of the glories of the kingdom. We are a people of the king who are waiting yet still to inherit the land, that is, the entire earth, that God has given to his son, Jesus Christ. And as we are waiting for Jesus Christ to come and for us to inherit the kingdom, to inherit the worldwide kingdom on this earth, we are currently a suffering people. We are partners, as John says in verse 9, in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. 
Well, that's who we are. God is introduced in the greeting of the book. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. And this Trinitarian greeting, grace to you and peace, comes not only from the Father, who here is described in that threefold phrase, who is and who was and who is to come, but also from the seven spirits who are before his throne. Now, we need to spend a little bit of time unpacking that designation for the third person of the Trinity. Why, in John's text, does he use this unusual, very troubling, some might say, description of the Spirit of God. It would have been so easy for him to just write the Holy Spirit, and then we could move right on and be just swimming. But he did not. Instead, he refers to the seven spirits who are before his throne, and this has caused a lot of confusion. Do we now have nine members of the Trinity? We have the Father, the Son, and the seven spirits who are before his throne. Other people have wondered, well, perhaps this isn't a reference to the Holy Spirit because it would be a rather strange way to refer to the Holy Spirit. And that perhaps these seven spirits are angelic beings that are before the throne of God, as we do see a number of angels in the book. And in fact, the seven stars that are held in the vision of Christ later in chapter one are representative of the angels of the churches. And so perhaps what we have here is a reference not to one member of the Trinity, but instead to angelic presence. However, I can't accept that the seven spirits refer to angels because nowhere else in the Bible are created beings like angels included in the greeting and the benediction that we have at the beginning of each book of the Bible. It would appear to me to be blasphemous to include angels in between the Father and the Son as the source of grace and peace to believers in Jesus Christ. Now, Perhaps uh, if you don't read the greeting quite that way and you're happy with understanding these seven spirits as angelic beings, well, I don't think that's something that we have to divide over. However, let me try to make a case from Scripture that this actually is an Old Testament way of referring to the Spirit of God. And in order to, to show that, we need to first look at the context in the book of Revelation. Before we back up to the Old Testament, let's see where else the seven spirits who are mentioned in verse 4 are also mentioned in the book of Revelation. These seven spirits are mentioned once again as we continue in the book in Revelation chapter 3, verse 1. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 3. Here in the middle of the letters to the seven churches, we are told in Revelation 3, 1, to the angel of the church in Sardis write, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Now here's a reference to the seven spirits. And here they are called the seven spirits of God. Now, if he had not put it in the plural and talked about seven, if he just said, who has the Spirit of God, then it would be pretty clear that he was talking about the Holy Spirit. But the fact that he says seven spirits, again, causes some confusion and people wonder, perhaps this is not referring to the Holy Spirit. And so this verse doesn't clear up too much for us as to the identification of the seven spirits. But come with me also to chapter four, verse five. We have another reference to the seven spirits before the throne of God in Revelation chapter 4, verse 5. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder, and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, 
which are the seven spirits of God. So once again, a reference to the seven spirits, once again, as in chapter three, referred more specifically as the spirits of God, and here identified as the burning torches of fire, which are before his throne. Hold on to that reference. That's going to help us make sense of this as we continue and as we then look back on the Old Testament background of this phrase. And then one more time in the book of Revelation, the last time that this is appearing is in Revelation chapter 5, verse 6. So in Revelation 5, verse 6, once again, we're still in that vision of the heavenly throne room that is the focus of Revelation chapters 4 and 5. And in Revelation 5, 6, we see between the throne... And the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. That's a reference to the Lord Jesus Christ, the lamb of God who was slain for our sins. And the lamb, notice, has seven horns with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. All right, so this verse I think is the most helpful out of the verses that we've looked at so far to show that this identification of the lamb who has seven horns with seven eyes, that there's a close identity between the lamb and his horns and the eyes that are on those horns or perhaps on the lamb, that if these are the eyes of the lamb, then that wouldn't necessarily correspond as much to an angel as it would to the spirit of God himself. And so with that clue, we're ready then to go back and really solve this puzzle by looking at the book of Zechariah. Come with me to the Old Testament prophet Zechariah. In the Minor Prophets, the book of the Twelve, the second to the last of the Minor Prophets is the book of Zechariah. Zechariah and then Malachi to close out the Old Testament canon. And in Zechariah chapter 4, we have a vision of a golden lampstand before the throne of God or in the temple of God, which is a picture, a portrait of the heavenly throne room of God. And I want us to take a look here at Zechariah chapter 4 together. Now, as you're turning to Zechariah, might take you a little bit longer to find it than some books in your Bible. It is the largest of the minor prophets. And it is also the minor prophet that is quoted the most in the New Testament because it is the book among the twelve that has the most prophetic references to the person of Jesus Christ, both in his first coming and in his second coming. The book of Zechariah is a key book for understanding the book of Revelation. Much of the imagery from Zechariah is used in the book of Revelation, and the style of the writing of the book is very similar as well. Ezekiel and Zechariah are probably the books that have the most in common in their writing style, along with Daniel, to the book of Revelation. So really, if you want to understand Revelation, you need to understand Daniel, you need to understand Ezekiel, and you need to understand Zechariah. And Zechariah is, admittedly, the hardest of the Old Testament minor prophets to understand. And Ezekiel is probably the hardest of the major prophets to understand. And so you see why people have difficulties understanding and interpreting the book of Revelation, even in the greeting of the book of Revelation, the way that the Holy Spirit is described is rather confusing. And so we go back to Zechariah, and I think this is part of the reason why God, in fact, has inspired John to identify the Holy Spirit in this way. It's a giant sign pointing back to the book of Zechariah, saying, hey, you want to understand the book of Revelation? Well, from the beginning, you've got to understand the Old Testament background in Zechariah. 
So let's go ahead and read part of the chapter here in Zechariah chapter 4 so you, you get some of the context for what we're talking about. I'm going to go ahead and put the verse up here that we're going to get to in Zechariah 4.10. The angel who talked with me, again, God sent his angel to John. Well, God sends his angel to Zechariah and gives him visions that is going to explain God's plan for what's coming up in the future. So the angel who talked with me came again and woke me like a man who was awakened out of his sleep. And he said to me, what do you see? I said, I see and behold a lampstand, all of gold, with a bowl on the top of it, and seven lamps on it, with seven lips on each of the lamps that are on the top of it. And there are two olive trees by it, one on the right of the bowl and the other on its left. And I said to the angel who talked with me, what are these, my Lord? Then the angel who talked with me answered and said to me, do you not know what these are? I said, no, my Lord. Then he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Notice the focus there on God's spirit, the spirit of God. Who are you, O great mountain, before Zerubbabel? You shall become a plain, and he shall bring forward the top stone amid shouts of grace, grace to it. So we find out later in the book that these two olive trees that are supplying the olive oil for the lamp that they are Zerubbabel and Joshua, who are key leaders in Israel during the time of Zechariah. And then much of the prophecy in the book, the first half of the book, focuses in on these men. And that the lamp that is here is the lamp that is in the temple, the menorah. Notice that it's one lamp, but it has one, two, three, four, five, six, seven lights on the lamp. And so it's one lamp, but it's also seven lamps. And so the picture of the Holy Spirit in the presence of God's temple, God's throne room, which on earth was the temple and in heaven is the vision that we have in Revelation 4 and 5, is that the eyes of the Lord, the lamp of the Lord, the lamp and eyes are often connected in Old Testament scriptures as metaphors. And so the lamp of the Lord are the eyes of the Lord that go out into all the earth. And so while you can describe this as seven lamps, you could also describe it as one lamp, as the Holy Spirit is one person, described in his sevenfold perfection or his sevenfold completeness by that number. And so the seven spirits comes back to Zechariah chapter 4 and these seven lamps that are there that are picturing the power of God's Spirit. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. A great verse for us to always remember, still very applicable to the church today. But then you come down a few more verses, and I, I want you to look at the end of verse 10. That's what we have here, Zechariah chapter 4, verse 10. And at the end of the verse, starting a new paragraph, they could have probably divided that verse in half, but they, they missed it. These seven are the eyes of the Lord which range through the whole earth. Does that sound familiar? That's why we read every reference to the seven spirits of God. They are the eyes of the Lord. Who has the seven spirits? It's Jesus Christ has seven eyes. And these seven eyes are what range throughout the whole earth. And not only are they representative of God's knowledge, but also representative of God's power, as we see here in Zechariah chapter 4. So, Zechariah 3 and 4, these verses, they give us insight as to why the Holy Spirit in the opening chapters of the book of Revelation is referred not to the normal nomenclature, but instead by this unusual designation, the seven spirits who are before his throne. Now, 
As far as why or how this represents the Holy Spirit, all we can say is that seven is the number of completion, seven is the number of perfection, and I think in many of the things that we find in the Bible, God hints at mysteries that go beyond what he has revealed or what we know. And so if you think you have a great understanding of the doctrine of the Trinity, you might be fully orthodox in understanding Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as three persons with one God, and you can talk in the Greek about the homoousios and all of that, that there's still things about the Trinity that we don't understand. I think here in the last book of the Bible, God you know, drops a, a hint going back to Zechariah and saying, well, okay, you've got the doctrine of the Trinity, but you know what? There's mysteries here that go beyond what's been revealed and what you yet understand. And there's things for you to look forward to understanding better in glory. So it's a little bit strange. It's a little bit mysterious. And I think that fits with the book of Revelation as we're going to find many things in the book of Revelation that are difficult to understand and that go beyond our understanding. It begins very early with a reference to the Holy Spirit as the seven spirits who are before his throne, who are the eyes of the Lord that go forth into all of the earth. Well, if you're satisfied with that explanation, then I am satisfied, and we're going to move on then to look at the person of Jesus Christ. Last week, we looked at the person of the Father, who is and who was and who is to come. We began now by looking at the identity of the seven spirits who are before his throne as a title for the Holy Spirit. Now we're going to look at the threefold designation for Jesus Christ at the end of verse 5. In this amazing greeting, grace to you and peace, we have from the Father, from the Spirit, and he saves the Lord Jesus Christ for last, which is unusual. Normally you'd expect to have Father, Son, and then Holy Spirit in the greetings. But because he wants to focus on the person of Jesus Christ and that he's going to be leading into this benediction upon the Lord Jesus Christ in the next paragraph, he saves the greeting from Jesus Christ for the last. And that's why then we get this threefold designation of who Jesus Christ is as the faithful witness the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. And I'm not the only one to have thought so, but this seems to correspond very nicely with the traditional threefold designation of Jesus Christ as prophet, priest, and king. He is the faithful witness. What does a prophet do? He bears witness to the word of the Lord, even as John is doing here in the book of Revelation. You look previously in chapter 1, and his servant John in verse 2 bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Well, we are witnesses of God's word and God's revelation, but Jesus is the faithful witness. He is the prophet among all prophets. He is the word of God himself. Jesus doesn't have to say, thus says the Lord. Jesus can say, thus I say, because he himself is the word of the Lord and so he is the ultimate prophet and he is the ultimate witness to the world. He's called the faithful witness. This witnessing ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ was largely accomplished in his first coming. We're told by the Apostle Paul that Jesus Christ testified the good testimony before Pontius Pilate. And when Jesus Christ was here on the earth, he said in John chapter 18, verse 37, one that we've been thinking about a lot recently in sermons, for this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. That's what he said before Pilate. That's the good testimony, the good witness that he had. So he's the faithful witness. And another connection, another connotation of the word witness in the Bible is martyr. 
In fact, we get our word martyr from the Greek word for witness. And one of the ways that Christians have witnessed to the truth down throughout the ages is by giving their life as a result of their testimony that God raised Jesus Christ from the dead. And so Jesus Christ is the one who gave his life when he was testifying. He's the ultimate martyr as well. And that then will lead us into the second part of his identity here. Not only is he the prophet, but he is the priest. His priesthood is manifest in his death for sins. That's why we've got him as the lamb here, a designation that's going to be very important in the book of Revelation. We saw it just a moment ago in Revelation chapter 4, or Revelation chapter 5, I should say. And as the lamb of God, the one who freed us from our sins by his blood, as it says in Revelation chapter 1 verse 5, he then was the firstborn from the dead. He is the one who did not die for his own sins, but he is the one who loves us and has died for our sins, and so death had no hold over him. Once he had paid for our sins once and for all on the cross, then he was free to be triumphant over death, to rise again, to raise himself by the power of God, by the power of the Holy Spirit on the third day. So he is the firstborn of the dead. His resurrection, his glorification, his exaltation, all of that tied up in that wonderful title that corresponds to the priestly ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then thirdly, you see in the text that he is identified as the ruler of kings on earth. We've got his earthly ministry, his resurrection, and then his coming kingdom all focused on here in the beginning of the book of Revelation. He's called the ruler of kings on earth. And this phrase is taken from Psalm 89, verse 27. You don't have to turn there. But here I put Psalm 89, 27 on the screen for you because Psalm 89 is a messianic psalm. It's all about God's covenant with David, God's promises to David, which we've been studying in our adult Sunday school as we're doing our walk through the Old Testament And Psalm 89, verse 27, actually has both of these titles in it because notice he's called the firstborn. The firstborn from the dead is the expansion on that title that we have in Revelation. And he's called the highest of the kings of the earth or the ruler of kings on earth. And you know what? Even the first part, the faithful witness, also is inspired from Psalm 89 because earlier in the psalm, there is a reference to the faithful witness So Psalm 89 is informing all of the titles of Lord Jesus Christ that we have in Revelation 1.5. So once again, the Old Testament is everywhere in the book of Revelation, and God is continually pointing us back to the Old Testament to be able to say, you've got to understand the previous revelation if you're going to understand the ultimate book of the Bible. Now, As we look into God's glory in Jesus Christ as prophet, priest, and king, we recognize then that this one is the one whom God has glorified. Back in the text, Revelation chapter 1, a new paragraph once again, but the same verse. They probably should have hit a new verse here for the new paragraph. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. Here, now, we've got a doxology beginning. When it starts off with to him, well then we come to the end to pick up on what is to him. And at the end of verse 6, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Now, him, as we've already mentioned, is the one who loves us. 
and has freed us from our sins by his blood. This verse is very reminiscent of what Paul wrote in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, where he said that he loved me and gave himself for me. But that's a past tense use of the word loved. Same word, but past tense, that he loved me and he gave himself for me. And throughout the Bible, when the New Testament talks about Christ's love for us, it's always in the past tense referencing the great act of love that Christ demonstrated for us when he gave himself for our sins. And here, that context is still very prominent. Being freed from our sins by his blood, that is how he has loved us. But notice that John doesn't put the love of Christ in the past tense. He puts the love of Christ in the present tense. And he says, to him who loves us presently, present tense. And I like that. It's encouraging to think, well, not only did Christ love me then, he loves me now. And this love of the Lord Jesus Christ has been proven and demonstrated once for all by what he did then. But let's not forget that the love that he had then is continuing for us now. He hasn't forgotten his love for you. His love for you hasn't changed. You haven't done anything that has removed his love from you because his love for you was never based upon anything that you had done in the first place. But it came from his own loving nature. He loved you and he loves you. Wanted to make a point of that this morning. But what we're driving at is this doxology. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. After the greeting, we have the doxology. And the doxology is focused on the person of Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ, among all the members of the Trinity, is the one who received the most attention in the greeting And he came last for emphasis, and then he receives the doxology after that because this book is really all about Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ is the heart and soul of the book of Revelation, and that's why Christians love the book of Revelation, even if we don't fully understand the timing of all of the events that are described in the book of Revelation. We do understand the person that is in control, the person that all things are moving towards, the person who has loved us, the person who has made us to be a kingdom, the person who receives the glory and the honor and the power that are his alone and don't belong to anyone else. Now you look in the world today and you see lots of people that are trying to take the power and the glory and the honor for themselves. And they're going to receive the power and the glory and the honor no matter what they have to do, no matter what lies they have to say, no matter who they have to kill, no matter what wars have to be fought. That's what sinful mankind does in rebellion against God. And God sits in the heavens and he sees all the evil rulers of the earth trying to take the power and the glory from one another, wrestle it for themselves, and he laughs at them because he sees how futile their attempts are. He sees how feeble and weak their own strength is. He sees how foolish their boasting is that they think that they are something when they are mortal men who are here for just a moment and then pass away. And God says, as for me, I have installed my king on Mount Zion. I have brought my king to my right hand. After he paid for sins, he has been raised from the dead. He's been exalted above the heavens. And at the right time, in the right place, he's coming. He's coming and every eye will see him. That's what we're building up to here this morning. But let's talk a little bit more about the doxology. To him be the glory and the honor. That's why I had this verse here from Isaiah chapter 42, verse 8. 
Isaiah is probably my favorite book in the Bible. And Isaiah 40 through 66 is probably the best part, definitely the best part of Isaiah. And early on in the book of Isaiah, chapter 40 through 66, that second part of the book, is this key focus on the glory of God and the glory of God alone. God works in history so that his name is glorified and that all those who try to take the power and the glory and give it to idols or give it to themselves, they are God's enemies. Because God says, I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. So God's victory over idolatry, God's victory over the nations that exalt themselves to act in a God-like manner, God's victory over Satan who tries to take God's place and God's position, this is God's holy war against all that would rise up to try to rob him of the glory and the power that belong to him. Now, If in the book of Revelation it says to Jesus Christ, who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever, what does that tell you about the Lord Jesus Christ? Obviously that he is God. Because the Lord will not give his glory to another, and so Jesus is no other than the Lord himself. This is abundantly clear throughout the New Testament, and yet there are still so many who dispute and deny the clear doctrine of the deity of Jesus Christ. The deity of Jesus Christ is not argued for in the book of Revelation. It is assumed, and that's the way it is throughout the New Testament. The deity of Jesus Christ is the assumption upon which the whole New Testament is built. I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other. This is God's world. It's God's creation. He will get the glory in it. And he does so through the glory of Jesus Christ. That brings us then to the theme verse in chapter 1, verse 7. In chapter 1, verse 7, let's look at it again. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. This comes first, right after the opening, right after the greeting, right after the doxology. The first thing is the big idea, the purpose of the book, to get our eyes fixed through spiritual faith on the coming of this one, the one who is the faithful witness, the one who is the firstborn of the dead, the one who is the ruler of the kings on the earth, the one who loves us, the one who has freed us, the one who has made us a kingdom and priest, that one is coming. Again, present tense verb, he is coming. Not he will come, he is coming, and he's coming with the clouds. And he's coming in such a way, as it says in the text, that every eye will see him. You won't have to go searching for the Lord Jesus Christ to find out where did he come? Where did he show up? Did he show up in some cave over in the Middle East? Did he show up on some mountaintop in Asia? No. You don't have to search the world looking for Christ when he returns. Jesus said, I'm coming with the clouds. Every eye on earth will see. Now we know the earth is rather large and round and you can have something in the clouds on one side of the earth that would be completely invisible to people on the other side of the earth. And so sometimes people ask the question, well, is this something that's going to be televised? Everyone will have their smartphones out, you know, and be like, oh, look what's happening over in Israel. There's uh, something happening in the sky over there. 
Well, I'm certain that when the sky reveals the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, that it will be something that is on many screens. But I think that also there will be a worldwide manifestation in the clouds of the glory of Jesus Christ. Jesus said it's like lightning flashing from one end of the sky to the other end of the sky. And that's going to be a a global flashing of lightning around the entire world where you have the sign first of the coming of the Son of Man and then his glory doing a global trot in the clouds so that every eye can actually look up and see that Jesus Christ has returned as he said. Now this phrase, this phraseology, he's coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, this is not new in the New Testament, but John is drawing upon what Jesus Christ himself had revealed when his disciples asked him about his second coming. Come back with me to the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 24. We're looking here at Christ's coming and our response to his coming. Several years ago, I taught through Matthew 24 and Matthew 25, which are the key chapters in the Gospels. Also, you can compare Luke's account of this same teaching, Mark's account of this same teaching. But it's known as the Olivet Discourse, where at the beginning of chapter 24, Jesus' disciples ask him about the end of the age and his coming. He then tells them about the signs of the end of the age, as the text says there in chapter 24, from verse 3 down to verse 28. But then verses 29 to 31 focus on the coming of the Son of Man. And what's the book of Revelation about? Behold, he is coming. Now let's remind ourselves what Jesus taught on the Olivet Discourse with what Jesus has revealed in Revelation. And notice the similarity in language here. We'll pick it up in verse 29. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Notice the mourning of the tribes on earth and notice the coming on the clouds of heaven. Exactly the same terminology that's used in Revelation chapter 1, verse 7. And this terminology is not new in Matthew either. It didn't start in Revelation, it didn't start in Matthew, but not surprisingly, it goes back also to the Old Testament prophets. You've got to understand the Old Testament prophets if you're going to understand the Olivet Discourse and if you're going to understand the book of Revelation, especially the book of Daniel. In the Olivet Discourse, Jesus makes specific reference to understanding what's written about the Antichrist in the book of Daniel. So, so important that we go back and see this in its Old Testament context, and that's what we're going to do with the time we have left. So Matthew 24, 30, the tribes of the earth mourning, the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven. Let's first take a look at the tribes of the earth mourning. And for that, we go back to Zechariah. Zechariah, once again, this time chapter 12. Zechariah is a book that's in two halves. The first nine chapters, excuse me, the first eight chapters go together. And then chapters 9 through 14 go together. And chapters 9 through 14 are largely about the future, talking about the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ, and have very little to do with Zechariah's own immediate context. And in Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10, we have this reference to the repentance of the people of Israel their final salvation. 
on this future day of the Lord when all the nations are going to come against Jerusalem and God is going to destroy the nations and save Jerusalem. And during that time period, during that future day of salvation for Israel and judgment upon her enemies, then we have this reference in Zechariah 12, verse 10. I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. And then the rest of the paragraph goes on to detail the mourning and the weeping that takes place in Israel over the one that they had pierced. And who is the one that they have pierced? The Lord says, that's me. It's me that they've pierced. And so it's an amazing prophecy, not only about the incarnation of the Lord, the God of Israel, not only of his death, that they were going to pierce him as he was pierced on the tree, but also of the future salvation of Israel, that they are going to look back and regret that action, and that they are going to recognize that this one that they rejected, this one that they pierced, this one that they killed, is in fact the Lord, their Savior. That's an amazing prophecy. And it's about on the same level as Isaiah 53. Because Isaiah 53 has all those same elements in it as well. God is coming. He's going to be rejected. They're going to kill him. But God is going to ultimately then bring Israel to repentance and salvation. Pretty amazing prophecy there that is at the heart of Revelation chapter 1 verse 7 and therefore the whole book and is also at the heart of Matthew chapter 24 verse 30 and therefore it's at the center of the Olivet Discourse. So you've got to understand Zechariah 9 through 14 and especially these prophecies here that are referenced if you're going to properly interpret the book of Revelation. That's why we're making this point early on. But let's go ahead and take a look then at the second Old Testament reference that is combined together in the key text in Matthew 24 and the key text in Revelation 1-7, and that's Daniel 7-13. So go back from Zechariah to the book of Daniel. In between the major prophets, you have the book of Daniel, right before the minor prophets. And Daniel is actually shorter than the book of Zechariah. You know, we think of Zechariah being a minor prophet. We think of Daniel being like among the major prophets. But if you're just going by size, Zechariah has 14 chapters, Daniel just has 12. And we're looking at the key chapter here in the middle in Daniel chapter 7, which also starts the second half of Daniel's book. The first six chapters in Daniel, largely historical about his own time, and then chapters 7 through 12, largely about visions for the future. In Daniel chapter 7, we have Daniel's vision of the four beasts which represent these kingdoms, these nations, these empires that are about to successively come upon the world scene, starting with Babylon being replaced by the Medes and the Persians, then being overtaken by the Greeks and Alexander the Great, and then the vast and powerful Roman Empire being pictured as the fourth dreadful and terrifying beast in the opening verses of Daniel chapter 7. Notice then, picking up in verse 9, that we have a vision of the heavenly throne of God. And this corresponds, of course, with Revelation 4 and 5. We had our scripture reading in Revelation 5. Revelation 4 and 5 are all about this vision of the throne room of God. Let's take a look here at the Old Testament counterpart in Daniel 7, 9. As I looked, thrones were placed, 
And the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before them. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. And the court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. He goes on and talks about the dominion of the beast being taken away, but I want to pick it up in verse 13. I saw in the night visions. So he's introducing something different, something new. He could have just continued on, but now he says, I saw in the night visions, a new introduction here. And behold, there's our word behold. With the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. We have an explanation of the four beasts and that final dreadful beast, but notice how then the chapter ends as we come down to the final poetry that is there. Pick it up in verse 26. But the court shall sit in judgment, and his dominion shall be taken away. That's the dominion of Antichrist. To be consumed and destroyed to the end. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. That's the big idea. You've got the salvation of Israel in Zechariah. You've got eternal dominion over all of the earth in Daniel chapter 7. So that's what the book of Revelation is about. It's about God turning the hearts of Israel back after they had rejected Christ. And it's about God giving all the power and the glory of all the nations to his son, Jesus Christ. That's reading it contextually. That's reading it with the Old Testament. And we're just getting started. So let's come back to Revelation chapter 1 and wrap things up here. As we go through the rest of the book of Revelation, you will see that the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ is a blessing to those who love him, to those who have been freed from their sins by his blood, but it is a terror to those who hate him and who reject him. The coming of the Lord Jesus Christ has two very different emotional responses among the two different kinds of people in the world. People always joke about how there's just two kinds of people in the world. Well, if you want to know the truth about who are the two different kinds of people in the world, you read the Bible. And the Bible makes it clear. There are those who are with the Lord Jesus Christ, and there are those who are earth dwellers. An earth dweller is someone who has no place in God's coming kingdom. An earth dweller is someone who has no faith in God's word. An earth dweller is someone who loves his life now and does everything that he can to make the most of his life now. But the one who believes in the Lord Jesus Christ, the true Christian, is the one who is willing to lose his life in order to find it. The one who does not love his life unto death. The one who is a sharer in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus Christ. And these are the two different kinds of people and they will be separated as the sheep are separated from the goats and as the wheat is separated from the chaff at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, notice the final words of verse 7. Even so, amen. That's the heart cry of the overcomer. That's the heart cry of the Christian. 
when you hear that Christ is coming with the clouds and that all the world is going to see him, the heart of the believer cries out, yes, yes, amen. That word even so is the Greek word for yes, and the amen is the Hebrew word for yes. So you've got the Greek and the Hebrew, yes, 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 Lord, yes, to your coming. That's what we cry out. It's the heart cry of the early church, Maranatha, that if a church is not filled with a desire to see the Lord Jesus Christ that animates them, that makes them holy, sanctifying them, that causes them to fear the Lord and obey the Lord and to be ready for his coming, then it is a church that is dying and perhaps dead. Real Christianity has an eschatological edge to it that we are filled with eager expectation and longing for the coming of Jesus Christ. You can measure your own spiritual health by that yardstick. How would you feel if suddenly you heard a loud trumpet and suddenly there was a sign in the sky and you started feeling yourself being lifted up to meet the Lord in the air? What would enter into your heart? Would it be, oh no, I'm not ready. Oh no, I'm ashamed. Oh no, I'm not going to get a great reward because I haven't been doing what Christ wants me to do. Or would your heart say, yes, this is the moment I've been living for. 